If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. If we have any visitors here this morning and you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of these lads in the back will um, bring you a copy of the Bible. Now, brother, I said visitors this morning. You come every Sunday. Where's your Bible, brother? Yeah, okay, all right. And this brother here, bring him a Bible. Uh, so if you need a Bible, raise your hands. I won't embarrass you like I do Julian. That's my love language with Julian. Um, and uh, we want you to follow along with us. Julian's going to find Romans chapter 6 for us and tell us what page it's on in the Bible. And as you turn there, I want you to think about an idea. It's really one of the most powerful ideas in human society. The idea of freedom. Freedom has been the thing that's been whispered among rebels oppressed by their governments. It's been the inspiration of national anthems and songs sang loudly when people have gathered freedom. In about a month's time, we will celebrate the freedom of this country uh, in its independence from England. We'll commemorate the valor of men and women who gave their lives and fought uh, heroically to throw off the yoke of tyranny and don the clothing of liberty. Now across the pond, England will remember that day differently. They will think of it as a time when citizens unjustly rebelled against the lawful rule of their king. What we call freedom, they call rebellion. It's interesting, isn't it? That true freedom from one's country's tyrannical rule means submission to another country's laws and government. Freedom's a slippery thing. Don't teenagers want freedom from their parents? They can't wait to get off to college, only to discover that the professor has something to say about how they use their time, right? Not as free as they thought. Immigrants go through mighty trials and they risk all they have so that they can be free. Prisoners look out of bars onto perhaps a, a street or a landscape wishing that they were out of those bars and free themselves. Homeowners, they, they want to one day be free from their mortgage companies. And there are people today who even want to be free from the natural boundaries of gender and sex. All of which raises important questions. Is every form of freedom equal? Is the freedom to leave your parents' home and control the same kind of freedom to marry people of the same gender? Is freedom from debt the same kind of thing as freedom from prison. The man free from a mortgage still has responsibilities that are financial. We may be free from one thing only to discover that we are enslaved by another. And what if the things that we think would bring us freedom actually end in a worse form of slavery? while the things we think would enslave us actually bring the truest freedom. What if we have it backwards because we think wrongly about the nature of freedom itself? What is freedom? And who is the best master? If you're thinking with me about Romans chapter 6 this morning, I want us to sort of hang our thoughts on three points, if you will, three categories. Number one, there are two wrong ways of thinking about freedom. We'll see in the text that there are two wrong ways of thinking about freedom. Our second point is that there are four ways of correcting our wrong thoughts about freedom. The Bible here gives us four ways as Christians to correct our wrong thinking about freedom. And then finally, how we think about freedom makes an eternal difference 
in our lives. How we think about freedom makes an eternal difference in our lives. And I pray that the Lord, by the truth of his word, would make us free. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore with him by baptism, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. First thing we want to see in this text are the two wrong ways of thinking about freedom. Apostle Paul, the one who is writing this letter, Introduce an idea at the end of chapter 5. It's an idea that wife preached on a couple of weeks ago. You'll see it there in verse 20 of chapter 5. Paul writes there, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, that's really good news. That's a really wonderful statement. He's saying that where people came into the knowledge of God's holy law, that the effect of that knowledge was to make them more aware of their trespasses, of their sins, of the ways in which they broke that law. So Paul could say a little bit later, I didn't know what covetousness was until the law came and said, thou shalt not covet. Then I was all of a sudden aware of all the ways I wanted things that belonged to other people that were not properly mine, and I was aware that that was sin. So where the law came, these trespasses and our knowledge of these trespasses, our knowledge of sin increased. But the verse goes on to say this. God's grace increased all the more. 
we would be overwhelmed with the knowledge of our sin and, and, and buried beneath a pile of guilt if all we had was the law. Because the law just barks at us like a dog in someone's yard, not to step on the grass, not to trespass. And, and all it does is condemn us because it's holy and we are not. And so if all we had were the law, we would have this, this overwhelming knowledge of our sin with little hope of escape. But where the law increased and sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It superabounded. It, it came in waves and droves. It came in volumes that far surpassed sin. Richard Sibb puts this this way. There's more mercy in the little finger of Christ than there is sin in us. There's this superabounding grace. What is grace? Well, a simple definition is kindness. Grace is God's kindness shown to sinners even though we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Grace is God treating us better than our sins deserve, much better. We sin, and all of humanity has sinned, and God has shown kindness. And Paul is saying that where sin increased because of the law, grace increased even more. Now, he realizes that at that point, the mind can run off in some unhelpful directions. The mind can reach some conclusions that are, in fact, false. And so in chapter 6, he picks up two questions, two rhetorical questions, two objections, which really define the ways in which the mind can go off to false conclusions. They're in verse 1 and in verse 15. So he says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, some people may think, hey, if the law increases sin and sin increases grace, why not sin so we can get more grace? Paul wants to address that. And verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, this is very close to the first error in verse 1, but there's a difference. In verse 1, the logic was like the logic of dominoes falling one after the other. The law comes, sin increases, grace increases. In verse 2, it, the, the metaphor might be like, whose, whose roof do you live under? My, my mama used to say things like, boy, as long as you live under my roof, you're going to do what I say. Anybody got a mama like that? And so in verse 15, there's the difference. We were Israel was once under the law, and the law said, you're going to do what I say. And so the law can be thought of as a kind of strict parent. But now, Paul has said, since Christ has come, we are not under the roof of the law, we're under the roof of grace. And the temptation is to think that grace is the permissive parent, that you can do anything that you want because it's grace and not law, that, that one can explore sin because we are under grace and are under the law. And Paul wants to address these ways of thinking. The first wrong, wrong way of thinking is, is an error in understanding how it is grace overcomes our sin. The second wrong way of thinking is an error in understanding what grace requires of those who are under it. Now, why is this in the Bible? Ever stop to consider that? Why is this in the Bible? Well, it's because God knows that sinful men are eager to exploit his goodness. Oh, when we're sinful people, what do we do? We, we don't mind hearing that God is good, do we? That, that's not particularly bad news. We, we love to hear that news. And, and then what do we do? We hear that God is good, and, and maybe the very person who's telling us that God is good has also been trying to address some sin in our life, some problem in our life. And, and so we take the God is good bit as permission to continue in the sin. Sinful man looks to exploit the goodness of God, not for their spiritual profit, but for the progress of their sin. God is kind to put this in his, in his Bible, in his book, and to address us 
and our wrong way of thinking. And in some ways, Paul has been concerned about this for many chapters throughout this letter. So if you keep your finger in Romans 6 and turn back to Romans chapter 2. If you're new to the Bibles, when you hear me say chapter 2, that's the big number on the page. And when you hear me say verse number, that's the small number. So look back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul addresses Israel there, and he asks this rhetorical question. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Right? He's addressing people who are presumptuous. They're saying, because God is kind and patient and forbearing, I can fill in the blank. He says, do you presume on that, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is important. The goodness of God, which comes to us by his grace, has a purpose. It is meant to, in fact, lead us away from things that bring God's anger into repentance and back to God. And so the misuse of his goodness not only does damage for the damage to our souls in sin, but it misses the great blessing of being brought back to God. And notice what Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 2. He goes on and he says there, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself, up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And here's the question to ask ourselves, particularly this morning, if you don't claim to be a Christian and you're new to Christian teaching about life, here's a question to ask yourself. Do you really want to turn God's goodness into stored up wrath on the day of judgment? Do you really want to live in such a way that even the kindness and patience of God with you becomes a more damning verdict against you on the day of judgment. Let his goodness cause you to turn away from sin and turn back to him. And these are errors that not only people who are not Christians make, but these are errors that that Christians make too. Paul is writing here to the church in Rome And and these two ideas make the serious mistake of assuming that Christians are free to do whatever they please because God's grace makes it okay. They think that God's grace means God's permissiveness and no restraint on them. And brothers and sisters, beloved, ideas have consequences. We cannot hope to have wrong ideas and ever hope to live in right actions. Two things don't go together. Wrong ideas produce wrong actions. That's that's just as true of Christians who receive God's grace as it is of non-Christians who who do not yet understand the grace and the gospel of God. And as Christians, we don't want to make this mistake either. Jude 4 says it is ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. If we are God's people, Christ's people, then we want to think rightly about his grace. Which brings us to our second point. The four adjustments, the four corrections to wrong thinking that Paul gives us in this text. So again, in verse 1, we've got, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In verse 15, we have the second error, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And the first answer to both of the questions is the same. So the first thing Paul tells us to adjust our thinking, answer number one, is by no means. By no means are we to think that way. You may have a translation that says, absolutely not. There is no means or no way by which we can claim to have received the grace of God leading to eternal life and at the same time, live a pattern of habitual sin. It's oil and water. Since I referenced English people earlier, it's chalk and cheese, right? It's it's two different things. And, And there is no means, there is no way that we can practice sin because we're under the covenant of grace because these things are not compatible. 
And the entire Bible agrees on this. So Jesus, our Lord, says in Matthew 7, verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Then he says in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Uh, the apostle John, the beloved apostle of Jesus, puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. No one who, has keep, who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Then in verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 3, he says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And he gives the reason why. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And here in Romans 6, we have the Apostle Paul saying it in yet a different way. By no means can someone continue in sin so that grace may abound or because we are under the covenant of grace. That's his first sentence. Here's a second answer, given in verses 2 to 5. Look there with me, the Word of God. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We might summarize the second reason this way. A person who truly receives God's grace leading to eternal life can not go on living in sin because they have been united to Christ. To Christ, to be a Christian, is to be someone who has died with Christ and who has been raised from that death in resurrection power with Christ, by faith in Christ. The marvelous miracle of salvation is that when God grants a person grace that leads them to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ, they are in that moment united with Christ, spiritually joined together with Christ so that all that Christ is and all that Christ does and all, all that Christ is to us is ours by that union. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness. All that he is as the perfect son of God becomes ours through union with him. And Paul is saying here in Romans 6, 2 to 5, that that's pictured in baptism. That, that ordinance, that command that God has given the church to practice when someone becomes a Christian, they are to profess their faith in baptism. And it's in that symbolic burying of them in the watery grave and raising them up out of the waters that it is pictured that that person who has faith in Christ has so been buried with Christ and raised with Christ that they are new creatures living a new life. So a Christian in their right mind would never sort of reason that because God's grace abounds where our sin is present, that, that we can sin, or because we are under God's covenant of grace, that, that we can sin. That's contrary to what's happened to us. But we died with Christ, and we have been raised together with him in newness of life. So sin is incompatible. And that brings us to the third reason that Paul gives us here. The third adjustment to our thinking. You see it there in verses 6 to 10? Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And this third reason we might summarize this way. Sin is no longer our master. God is if we are in Christ. Sin is no longer our master. 
God is if we are in Christ. Did you notice the slavery and freedom theme in those verses? One reason that we are crucified with Christ through faith, verse 6, is in order that our sin, notice, might be brought to nothing, might be made impotent, might be made weak, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And let's slow down here for just a moment. This is vitally important. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what this text means is that you are currently a slave. You are a slave to your sin. Do you think of yourself that way? As enslaved to sin? Do you think of sin as your master? This, this may be surprising to you to hear this. It may even, may even be offensive. And I don't mean to point this out in order to offend you. I want you to let you know that that's, in fact, how God sees you right now. If you have not come to Christ in faith, then you still belong to the enemy of your souls in slavery. The entire Bible, in one sense, is all about slavery to sin and freedom in Christ. Our first parents, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, were created without sin and placed in a garden where there was no sin and had the ability to obey God and to serve God or to disobey God. They disobeyed God. They sinned against God. And in that moment, rather than being masters of themselves, Sin became masters over them and over all of us who have descended from them. Every human being has at one point been in slavery to sin. And then the Bible tells us that God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to defeat sin and to defeat the penalty of sin and to defeat and dethrone the master who once held us in sin, namely Satan. And that Christ on the cross being crucified in our place is paying the debt that we owe for sin. In other words, the cross is a slave's auction block where Christ offered up his very own blood to ransom slaves from their sin. To lead us, as it were, into the freedom of being under the easy yoke of Christ himself that he might be Lord, and that Satan would no longer have mastery over us. And so the odd thing about freedom is that you never find it alone. We are not autonomous. We do not govern ourselves in some absolute sense. That itself is sin. Going your way apart from Christ is the Bible's definition of sin. You think you are your own person, you want to live by your own rules, to do your own thing, you are declaring before the God of the universe that you are enslaved to sin. Freedom comes through enslavement to Christ. That's what the Bible is about. That's what Jesus has accomplished. And and that's why the only true people truly free in the way that God intends are those who turn away from their sin, confess it to God, and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, as master, as ruler of their lives and Savior. Is that you this morning? Have you come to understand that? Do you still think of yourself as essentially free to do as you wish, to choose between good or bad, and not necessarily be under the slavery of good or bad? If that's the case, you're actually thinking the way only two people in the history of humanity could ever have thought of themselves. That's Adam and Eve, whom I mentioned a moment ago. Those are the only two persons in all the history of humanity who stood between good and evil, uh, righteousness and disobedience, without any constraint on themselves, able to choose freely as individuals. This is what our confession of faith 
confesses in the first two paragraphs. If you look to the sort of next to last page of your bulletin, you'll see these two paragraphs uh, printed there. This is chapter 9 of the London Baptist Confession. I wonder if I can invite you guys to read these two paragraphs with me this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses, chapters 1, and two, or excuse me, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 9, paragraphs 1 and 2. <laughs> Got to keep that straight. Be with me, please. In the natural order, God has endued man's will with liberty and the power to act upon choice, so that it is neither forced from without, nor by any necessity arising from within itself, compelled to do good or evil. Second paragraph. In his state of innocency, man had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and acceptable to God. Yet being unstable, it was possible for him to fall from his uprightness. So this is what the, 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 the summary is summarized in the Bible, that Adam and Eve, they didn't have anything within them or outside them to make them choose good or evil. They, they were, in that sense, absolutely free to choose. Now, that freedom had an instability in it. See that there in the second paragraph? And that instability was the possibility of choosing to disobey God. And so now let's read together the third paragraph. As the consequence of his fall into a state of sin, man has lost all ability to will the performance of any of those works, spiritually good, that accompany salvation. As a natural, unspiritual man, he is dead in sin and altogether opposed to that which is good. Hence, he is not able, by any strength of his own, to turn himself to God or even to prepare himself to turn to God. Oh, so now we're coming right to the heart of our idolatrous notions of freedom. Because this paragraph is summarizing what the Bible teaches. That we are unable and unwilling to do anything that would save us. We are unable and unwilling to do anything to come to God. Unaided by God's grace, we are not only lost in sin, we are enslaved to sin. And so Jesus says in John 6, that no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. Paul could write in Ephesians chapter 2 um, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We're so unable and unwilling that spiritually we are, as the thing says, dead before God. Unless you have received God's grace, leading you to repent of sin, and to trust in Christ. Beloved, you are still enslaved in sin. Let me offer you one other proof how you may know whether or not you are enslaved to sin. Have you ever tried to stop sinning altogether? Have you ever tried to will, as it were, a perfect righteousness. How did that go for you? Forget all sins. Think about that one sin. You know the one. Have you ever tried to stop that one sin? Even when you have recognized that this isn't good. Even when you've recognized that it's, it's in fact not only not good, it's, it's wrong. I, I know this is wrong. And you have made resolution to stop it. What did you feel? Maybe you felt like you were dying. Maybe you felt like you just could not live without that one thing. And you grit your teeth. And you rolled up your sleeves. And you resolve to try harder. Now think about it. When you resolve to try harder, what was the first thing your heart suggested to you? Was it, yay, let's try harder? No, your heart whispered to you, didn't it? No, 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 no. And you felt from that moment the pull of sin. 
You felt your heart drifting that way. You, you felt from that moment a certain power that you wanted to resist, but you couldn't resist. And that you resisted, but not really. And before long, you stopped resisting. Didn't mean you stopped rationalizing, but you stopped resisting. And you started to dabble. And you were warmed by it. You liked it. It may not be the kind of thing you want to admit to people, but you liked it. And so you went again. And you felt the pull, and you went again. And you felt the pull, and you went again. You didn't really feel a pull in the other direction. You didn't really want to be pulled in the other direction. That, beloved, is what slavery to sin feels like. Are you a slave to sin? I ask you that question because there's a way to be free. There is a great and glorious way to be free. First, acknowledge honestly to God that you are indeed a sinner. That you not only commit sins, but it seems to be in you. It calls you. It draws you. And confess to God that you have even liked it. Confess that it's wrong. Confess that it's evil. Confess that it's unpleasing to God. Acknowledge that he has the right and would be right to judge you for your sin. Secondly, repent of your sin. You see it. You named it. You've confessed it to God. You know its power on you, but turn your back on it. Make war against it. Jesus puts it this way in these powerful images. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck out your eye. If your, if your arm causes you to sin, cut off your arm. War against your sin. Array all the forces of your natural self. Yea, more than that, array all the forces of heaven. Array all the power of God against your sin. Make your declaration that you are switching sides. You've been in the wrong country, under the wrong king. You're now fleeing and crossing the border to join that country whose king is king of kings and to go to that country whose foundations are not made by man. Run away from your sin. Flee it. Turn from it. Make war against it. Say no to it at every turn. Repent of your sin. And third, this is the other side of repentance. Put your trust and your hope and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sin to take away the penalty of sin, who was raised from the grave in newness of life to destroy the power of sin in your life, whose blood will cleanse you in order to remove the pollution of sin. Turn to Christ and, and call upon his name. Call upon him. Ask him to save you. Ask him to deliver you from your sin. Ask him to do just what he promised, that if you would trust in him, that he would give you a new and everlasting life, that he would remove all your sins, that he would remove the guilt of your sins, that he would remove the penalty of your sins, and he would be your righteousness, and he would be your Lord. Turn to him. Trust him. Call upon him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because it's believing that that delivers you from the slavery of sin and brings you to that freedom which is in Christ. Notice how our confession puts it in chapter 3. Excuse me, chapter 4. When God converts a sinner and brings him out of sin into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage to sin. And by his grace alone, he enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. That's a beautiful sentence. Read it with me this time. When God converts a sinner and brings him out of sin into the state of grace. He frees him from his natural bondage to sin 
And by his grace alone, he enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. You see the reversal? In paragraph two, we cannot will or do anything that would be pleasing to God and that would save us. But then comes God's grace. And God in his grace gives us repentance. He gives us faith. We trust in Christ. And by that same kindness of God, that grace of God, he enables us now to act with a new will to will and to do what pleases him, to go from slavery to sin to that freedom, which is another kind of slavery, to Christ, a joyful slavery to Christ. This is what Jesus has done for us. Do not let it go unclaimed. Do not let it pass you by. Trust in Christ. As we come to our fourth reason here, quickly, Paul has been writing here to sort of correct our wrong understandings of grace. He's saying absolutely not is grace compatible with with anything that we call sin. And he says, secondly, not only that, but we have been buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. And he says, number three, not only that, but in that resurrection to newness of life, we have switched masters. Christ has become our Lord, whose burden is easy and yoke is light. Now he comes, number four, to give us a fourth reason. See it there, verses 16 and 19. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We have a new master. Christ has purchased us from our sin. And I hope you see the irony. We are never more free in life until we become slaves of Christ. We are never more free in life until we become slaves of Christ. You see there in verse 16, he says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. As Christians, having been freed in Christ, we come now to this crossroads of sin and death on the left and obedience and righteousness on the right. But if we are in Christ, we are now prejudiced. We have a new bias. We used to be prejudiced toward the road that leads to sin and death. That always, that dark road always looked like light to us. But now in Christ, our eyes have been opened and we see the darkness and we see the craggy trees hanging over the road and the snares on the side of the road. And we look to our right toward righteousness and obedience. And and there we see light that is really light and a path that's laid for our feet. And so now we have this inclination, this new bias, which we didn't once have to want to do what is right. So verses 17 and 18 We have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, God has given us a new heart with his word written on it. That's part of the new covenant. It's part of what Pastor Jeremy taught us about over the last couple of weeks. Because we have this new heart with God's word written on it, we who are in Christ are free from the dominion and the rule of sin and bent toward God and righteousness inclined to him. We want to obey him. We feel real conviction and guilt over our sin, but we feel the pull to what is right, and we enjoy doing what is right, all because Christ has become our Lord and wooed our hearts by his love. This is the fourth reason we cannot go on sinning so grace may abound or because We're under grace. Grace made us slaves to a loving master. Grace makes us servants to righteousness. That's how Paul puts it in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then notice, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Beloved, that is what true freedom looks like. It looks like life transformed by grace to the point of saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to self-control, uprightness, and godliness. Are you free? What do you do with your freedom? Do we serve righteousness or do we serve unrighteousness? If we are Christ, we only have one choice. And if we are Christ, we feel him pulling us down that righteous path leading to sanctification. Can I show you one other thing? Because these pulls toward righteousness can sometimes feel so fleeting and, and so weak if we're not careful. Look there in verse 19. Paul talks about what they once did when they presented their members to slaves, to impurity and lawlessness. Did you notice there that it's leading to more lawlessness? What does that mean? Have you ever heard anybody say honesty is the best policy? Well, why? Because if you've had any instruction on this, somebody somewhere, your mom or dad or maybe a teacher said, you know, the moment you tell a lie, well, then you have to tell another lie to cover the first lie. And you got to tell a third lie to cover the first two. And then you got to keep track of the lies, at which point you've just become a liar. Right? Notice how that one lie kept increasing in more lawlessness. That's the nature of sin. You can't give it an inch, it'll take a mile. Right? But now notice what Christ does in, in verse 19. We've come under his yoke. We've been freed from sin, and now we're, we're under his rule. Notice what he says. Now we present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. The opposite is true, too. Every small act of obedience by God's grace produces more room and more fruit of obedience. And, and we add to that another act, and we add to that another act until we looked up and we're sanctified. We've grown in holiness. We've grown in grace. I, I love this illustration that I'm stealing from Matt Chandler that illustrates this. Somebody say, yay, Matt Chandler, all right. <laughs> it's Christians. We're like little babies, man, little toddlers who, who discover they have legs at some point. And, you know, they, they, they sort of reach that age where they've got a head the size of a spaceship and legs the size of toothpicks, and, you know, they... They, they pull up on the side of the couch or the side of the table, and as I said, they discover they had legs. So they start, you know, doing stuff like this and bouncing. You know, they look like they're driving one of those hoopies in South Central, right? You know, just, just bouncing. And, and, and then they start this sort of test. They take one hand off and step away. They come back, take another hand off and step away. Jeremy, you're going to see this in some months. And then they discover that they can stand without holding the table. And they're standing, and mom and dad are like, ooh. And then, then they discover, I can actually move one of my feet. And they move a foot, and then what happens? Boom. They go down, right? You know, they fall. And, they, and the parents are like, get up, get up, get up, do it again, do it again. So you get them up, you stand the kid up, and the kid look at him, and you take another step in, and you boom. And, and, then, and then don't let him put two steps together, right? And the parents are like, oh, he's walking, he's walking. You know, you know what you've never seen? You've never seen the husband look at the wife and say, you see that when he fell, that right there? That's your side of the family right there. He never condemned a child for stumbling. However feeble their first steps, so it is in Christ. He never condemns us for stumbling. However imperfect our obedience is, however partial, and they're all partial, however we stumble, he picks us up and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. Watch him walk in me. Watch him follow my steps. Watch him grow in sanctification. Beloved, be encouraged if you are Christ. Every act of righteousness is adding to your sanctification. And Christ in his grace is multiplying it and ballooning it and swelling it and expanding it such that, that all he sees on you is his righteousness. Walk in it. It will feel to you like freedom. Let's end on this final question, this final observation. The difference our thinking makes in life and eternity. And you've, you've been seeing this as we've been going along in the text here. Look with me in verses 20 to 23. Paul writes there, you were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. Now, how many know that's true? 
When you, were, when you were chasing your sin and delighting in your sin, you had no regard for righteousness other than not wanting to get caught. Right? That's, that's what he means there. You were, you were free from righteousness. You didn't think about it. You weren't serving it. You didn't care about it. You just wanted what you wanted. Right? So when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? How many Christians look back on things they were doing before Christ and they feel shame? See, in verse 20, your slogan was, ain't no shame in my game. Verse 21, you start to see, oh no, there's something right and godly about shame. Some things are not right. And not only not right, they're shameful. And when you feel that, when you didn't used to, that's evidence of the presence of God in your life. And so now you look back on those things, you go, those things were fruitless, right? And then he tells us how fruitless the end of those things is death. So let me say to you this morning, if you've come and you're not yet a Christian and, and you've heard me address you from the Bible about why you should be a Christian and you're thinking about continuing in your sin, let me stop now, say a final thing to you. If you do that, it will lead to death. And not just your physical death, eternal death. You will forever be separated from God, which is what the Bible calls the second death, and you will be judged eternally in his wrath. I'm saying this to you as a loving warning, because already your sin whispers to you, it ain't that bad. It is. It is. You can't imagine how bad the wrath of God is. And it's coming. His wrath, his judgment is coming, and you don't want to be caught in it. Turn from sin, it leads to death. Turn to Christ, it leads to life. Don't even wait a moment. Call upon his name. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. Praise God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> we love the hookup. We do. We like free stuff. What could be greater <laughs> than the free gift of eternal life? Joe was so kind to me this week. He sent me an email. Hope you don't mind me saying this. It's too late. He, said, he, said, he sent me an email. He says, hey, brother, there's an event on the White House lawn. Would you want to go? Out of the blue, unsolicited, unprompted. And I'm thinking to myself, that means they got to do a background check. <laughs> should I say yes? Should I say no? And I'm thinking, this is the hookup. Yes, I want to go. I received that gift. <laughs> Forget President Obama. And the White House lawn, God in Christ has offered you an eternal kingdom which shall never fade away. It's a free gift. Say yes. Say yes. Believe on Christ and live. Christian, let's say a few things to make this practical. Um, won't take long because Paul gives us the applications in the text itself. Look with me back at verse 11. One, two, three, four, five things then that we want to apply as Christians thinking about freedom of our will and freedom in Christ. Number one, Christian, verse 11, count yourself dead to sin. You actually have to reckon that. You actually have to think that. You actually have to consider that self about yourself. Otherwise, the opposite will tend to have its influence on you. You will think that sin is a live option. no. You've been crucified with Christ. You've, been, you've put to death the sins and of the old man and the old body. Now think that way. Count yourself dead to sin. You see how much of this involves right thinking. And that's number one. Number two, verse 12, deny sin's reign. You see how Paul puts it there in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. You will still have to fight sin. Sin will still be knocking and crouching at your door. And so you must be prepared to always say, even preemptively, no. I'm dead to you. I don't know you any longer. Don't keep coming around here. 
Y'all got some neighbors like that, right? (laughs) No. You will not reign. You will not have your way. You, you, You will not control me because I do not belong to you. I belong to Christ. And then you remind yourself of something like this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. You've been crucified with Christ, raised by that same power in Christ, and Christ lives in you. You have victory now over sin. Preach that to yourself and preach no to sin. Number three, do not use your body as tools of unrighteousness. So now Paul has given us some, some sort of some checks. Maybe you lost a battle in your thinking. You forgot to count yourself dead to sin. You forgot to say no to the temptation of sin. But now there's the question of what you actually do. Oh, let that be another place where you start to consciously check yourself. Oh, I'm about to yield to this thing and act on it. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me back up. Let me back up from the cliff. Let me back up from the fire. I don't have to give in to that. Sin does not reign over me. I am dead to sin. Let me back away. Do not let it rain. It has no power in your life. Christ has broken the hold of sin on your life. And there's a sense in which this truth is really helpful in our therapeutic age, where where everything's a kind of psychological problem. No, a lot of things are just sin problems. They're just sin problems. And, And we need to endeavor to learn how to say no to them. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to yield my body to it. Number four, instead, verse 13, present yourself to God. Every time sin tempts you, turn to God and say, I'm yours. Turn to God and say, have me again. Take me in your arms again. Shelter me. Keep me. Protect me. I'm yours. Present yourself to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as a living sacrifice. And be doing this work of renewing your mind so that you would be able to to sort of prove what is his good and acceptable service. Present yourself to God. Number five, then use your body to serve righteousness. Our bodies, according to verse 13, are tools. They're tools that we use to either serve unrighteousness or righteousness. And the choice is clear for Christ. We use our bodies. We freely choose in the power of the Holy Spirit, to serve God with him. Yield your body to righteousness. And may the Lord give us grace and power and strength to do all these things for the glory of his name, right in the midst of our temptation and our struggles, which we all have, so that he would be glorified, that Christ would be honored, and that freedom would be enjoyed. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us this freedom. Let us experience it more deeply. Bring some into the freedom of eternal life for the first time by the power and the working of your grace. Oh, they may have been offended to hear that somebody thinks of them as slaves to sin, Lord, let them be more offended that they have sinned against you. Oh, God, they they may have been discouraged because they've been reminded that that sin has defeated them again, and they can see the desire in their hearts to go to it. Lord, more than being discouraged of that reminder, let them be hopeful that you have power to free them from that sin. Let them abandon themselves. Let them forget themselves. Let them, Lord, by the power of your grace and the working of your spirit, even now, call upon your name. Give them a desire that they did not have before this morning. A desire to follow you and to honor you with their bodies and to honor you with their speech and to honor you with their thoughts, to honor you when they are alone in private and to honor you, Lord, when they are in public. Lord, let them see that to be a slave of Christ is the greatest, joyous, most joyous freedom imaginable. Let them run to Christ, Lord. Holy Spirit, free them. Grant them the gifts of repentance and faith, we pray. And Father, we pray not only for them, we pray for ourselves, for we have not yet finished our warfare with sin. 
We won't until the day when you come and we see you face to face and seeing you, we are transformed into your very image and your likeness and then are free forever with everything dark. But until that day, Lord, help us to wage this holy war to put to death sin and unrighteousness in our mortal bodies and to put to death sin and unrighteousness in our desires and to bring our members under the control of Christ and we might live for him and obey him and be his servant more fully each day and keep us from the despair that we sometimes feel when we stumble. Help us to know that you're able to make us stand, that we're your servant, and to you we stand to fall, and your word says you're able to make us stand. Indeed, you are able to present us faultless. Make that our hope. And by that hope, O oh Lord, give us strength to persevere in the beauty and the joy of righteousness. Lord, free us also from making excuses about the things we choose. O oh Lord, free us from shifting the blame. And grant us that kind of maturity that kind of adulthood that humbly, Lord, accepts responsibility and wisely casts ourselves upon you for more mercy. For your mercy is never ending and nothing will separate us from your love. Lord, keep us and sanctify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.